light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia, and today I'm picking up the conversation with Toby Sinclair from End Beyond Asia. In part one of this podcast, Toby told us about his experiences living and working in Asia for 40 years and introduced us to the diverse personalities who guided and inspired him. Today, Toby will be chatting to us about the status of conservation in India from the 1970s onwards, how it has developed over time, and the role that wildlife tourism has come to play in promoting it. Now, Toby, just to paint a bit of a broader picture, what was the status of conservation in India at that time? Was there widespread awareness of conservation and of wildlife management issues? What were some of the challenges that wildlife and the environment in general was facing in India at the time? And have those issues developed and changed? Uh, That's a huge question. India still allowed hunting and shooting in the 1960s. And people were beginning to realize by the end of the 60s that numbers and populations, especially cats, leopards, tigers, Mm -hmm. some areas, elephants or bears, were dwindling and they weren't being seen so often. So in 1971, a census was done for tigers and it was thought that there were under 2,000 tigers survived in India. So on April the 1st, which is an unfortunate date, 1973, Project Tiger was launched by the government of India, and nine protected areas, existing wildlife areas, either a national park or, in a couple of cases, sanctuaries, they would get central government funding for the protection of tigers. And when this was set up, the World Wildlife Fund International, which was really a guy called Guy Mountford, a British businessman, lawyer in those days, committed a million dollars, which is a lot of money in 1973. And the government of India matched it. WWF's contribution remains, and it was incredibly important, that initial million-dollar seed money. But since then, the government of India has spent tens and tens of millions protecting wildlife, protecting these parks, developing a network of tiger reserves, as they're now called. A tiger reserve, in most cases, consists of a national park and some buffer area. So in some ways, we often use the term tiger reserve interchangeably with national park. But they have slightly different statuses, but they are in all intents and purposes the same thing. There are now 50 of them in India. So from nine in 1973 to 50 today, that's quite impressive. Tiger numbers over the intervening close to 50 years have gone up and down at various stages. They initially went up, probably by about 1990. They may have been 4,000 tigers. And then China ran out of tiger parts, which they needed for their medicines and for their other industries. They put out a sort of international order for tiger parts, tiger burns. Mm -hmm. And there are a few crooked guys all over the world. And they, so Indian tigers started being poached. And there was a crisis in the 90s. Tiger numbers fell. Then people realized it took time for the government to admit that there was a problem. And you can't deal with a problem until you admit that it exists. So we lost a lot of time in the early 90s, and we lost more tigers. But then it built up again. And then there was another slightly more localized crisis 
around 2000 when tigers were being poached again. And by that time, I was working on various films, and we, I made a, worked on a film for the BBC called Tiger Crisis, and then five years later, we did Tiger Crisis Update, and then that's when my, that whole cycle of wildlife filming that I did sort of began. And my job was just very much part of a team doing permissions and logistics and research, but I wasn't the cameraman and I wasn't the producer. I was just a cog in the machine. But what a wonderful machine and what a lovely products that we were able to produce so we were documenting the tiger problems, sometimes as it happened, sometimes retrospectively. And those programs were used worldwide to raise awareness, raise money, and to lobby governments. Mm-hmm. And the protection of tigers extended from India yes. in the 70s into Nepal with the World Wildlife Fund, into Bangladesh, into then into Southeast Asia. During my 40-odd years of knowing about tigers. The tigers in Java have gone instinct. They weren't. They were probably only three males anyway in the 1970s, so they didn't actually have much chance. But that subspecies has gone. Sumatra numbers are down. A more region, eastern China, that number's way down. The Indochina subspecies, which interestingly is named Corbetai after an Indian hunter-naturalist called Jim Corbett, their numbers are way down. The amazing thing is that they survived the Vietnam War. You would have thought they would have been bombed out, but they were a few. So today, the Indian subcontinent, which is really India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Shundabans in Bangladesh, and bits of Bhutan, is where the future of the tiger lies. So it is mm-hmm. so important that government of India accepts its responsibility. Less than 4% of India's land is protected with national parks and sanctuaries. How things have changed since I am back here in 1977 from Nepal. When I came to Delhi to live and work in 1977, there were approximately 600 million people in India and about 6 million people in New Delhi or the Delhi area. Today, there are 1.3 billion people. So it's more than doubled in 43 years that I've lived here. And Delhi region, which sort of incorporates Delhi and what were just suburbs 20 miles away, but the land in between has been filled in, linked. Delhi is now 22 million, 23 possibly. So the population of Delhi is the same as more or less the population of Australia or more or less the population of Sri Lanka. And India is 1.3 billion. But tiger numbers have gone up from 1,700 to 3,500 possibly in the wild in India. As I said, it's gone up and down a bit. Tigers in Nepal have gone up a bit, numbers. There are tigers being seen in in other areas, but that's partly because of access. More roads are being built into areas, which is also detrimental. Scientists and conservationists are able to survey more. The use of remote camera technology, putting cameras on tracks and paths in different forest areas, has given us much, much more knowledge. So it's quite possible we're seeing tigers in areas that they were before, but we never looked. And I think the same probably applies with small mammals as well. Even today, 2020, we hear reports of an animal being found in an area where it wasn't previously recorded. doesn't mean they, it wasn't there before. It's just that we, had, we hadn't looked mm-hmm. before. And it's the same with pangolins or lesser cats and civets, and be it in Africa or South America or Asia. 
there is a marvelous patch of forest in a northeastern Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh, which is east of Bhutan and links up to Burma, and so is on with Tibet to the north. And there's a valley, a very beautiful valley there, which has wow. got amazing diversity, which is threatened mm-hmm. by a dam project. And of course, infrastructure is the great, probably the greatest threat to a lot of wildlife areas today worldwide. So someone's been working up there doing surveys and has picked up images using remote cameras of golden cat. Now, in the 45 years I've lived in the subcontinent since going to Kathmandu in 1975, I've only seen one golden cat. And that was in the Kathmandu Valley, on the edge of the Kathmandu Valley, actually. But they found different morphs, i.e. different color patterns and coat patterns on golden cats in this valley in Arunachal Pradesh, which is going to be dammed. And they found six different morphs. So they found black, like black panthers, which are just melanistic leopards. They found the golden cat, which looks like a rather orangey Labrador, which is the version that I saw in the pool. They're lighter ones. They found spotted ones. But it's the same animal in different phases, different different. And different valleys have different different gene pools. And it's obviously, as an animal, it's a work in progress because it's yes. finding it. And the gen- I would love to know more about the genetics of it. They haven't been captured. And I don't, as far as I know, that we don't have many blood samples. So I don't know if any genetic work. But the, I've seen the photographs. And it's remarkable. And in 2000, we are discovering that the golden cat doesn't have to be golden. When we talk about leopards, we think of a yellowish cat with black rosettes on it. But when we see a black cat, it's still a leopard, and they still have rosettes, but it doesn't have the yellow. So we call it a panther. We call it a black panther in Asia. But it is the same animal. It is the same sort of creature genetically. So there are lots of mysteries. We still find birds. I mean, in Sri Lanka, which is an area that I've got to know quite well over the last 30, 40 years, and we set up an office there a few years back. When I first went serious birding in Sri Lanka with a colleague uh, in 1995, we were actually doing a recce for filming for Land of the Tiger series, there were 23 endemic bird species, and I was really lucky. I think I saw 20 of them in a two-week period. And now 33 mm-hmm. recognized endemics. Now, some of it is because it's decided that the, you know, the green pigeon that was found in, is found in South India and in Sri Lanka is actually different now. from so, so it's a split. But there are also birds that have never been identified. We're finding birds in a tiny island like Sri Lanka. There's the Serendip scops owl, mm-hmm. which was recognized initially by its sound it was realized that this bird is making a call which we've never heard before. And then they tracked the call and saw a bird which they'd never seen before. And an island which has had naturalists and bird watchers going up and down it for 150 years. Mountain areas and forest areas had opened up for tea plantations and coffee plantations. They were able to find a bird which had never been recorded by science. And this was 10 years ago. So there's still surprises, and there's mm-hmm. still things. And this is especially true when it comes to amphibians and butterflies and dragonflies. And so we're learning so, so much. I mean, there's a dragonfly 
that 10 years ago it was discovered migrates from Africa to yes. India, a dragonfly, mm -hmm. and goes back. And it does it in four stages, in four lifetimes, in the sense mm -hmm. that, that, you know, parent A will fly from India to the Maldives, and it'll have young, and they will fly from the Maldives to Eastern Africa, to the Somali coast mm -hmm. or Kenya. And the grandchildren of the first one will fly back from the Somali coast to the Maldives. And the great-grandchild <laughs> will fly from the Maldives back to India. That's... Four generations. I mean, wow. Why does this happen? I mean, lots of little things in Sri Lanka and in finding, because you've got some wonderful scientists, many of them mm -hmm. amateurs, but, serious, but scientifically yeah. qualified ones. They're finding new amphibians. They're finding skinks. You know, mm. They look at one side of a valley is one species and the other side is another. And that's true also with birds in parts of the Himalaya. Yes. Uh, you know, these, a river valley can be a, a, a scientific split. And they look different. But they're obviously related in some way. But they just never flew across the valley. Or the skinks never walked across the valley. And... Um, they found new, I think it was six new frogs were discovered recently in central India. I find this very exciting that as we are chopping down the forest and we're destroying the land, every so often the land produces a surprise and bang, a new species. But it's not really new. Frogs, frogs predate the dinosaurs. Birds are dinosaurs. <laughs> you know, and we humans who who walked out of Africa 110,000 years ago or whenever, who are probably less than yes. 2 million years old in our, if you look at Homo erectus and all the other sort of things, were walking around Africa. I mean, we found a new human, a humanoid species was found 12 years ago mm. in southern Siberia. Last year, a bone from which we've got genetic material from that same species, Devonian, was oh, wow. discovered in a cave in eastern Tibet. I mean, it's last year, a humanoid species that lived 25,000 years ago. That's absolutely amazing. You know, the, the genetic kind of coding, it's, yeah. Wow, really? It's, it's it is really amazing. And, and so we have the audacity and the arrogance to go into these forests with our chainsaws and build four-lane highways. Mm. Never knowing what it is that we're destroying, actually. Thank God we still have a few bits of forest that we can go back to. It's one of the joys of working for this company. We're still discovering. In Africa, we found that wildlife tourism can actually contribute a lot towards conservation and towards the preservation of the environment. As far back as the early 1980s, you consulted on building up camps and lodges in India's national parks. How has this process developed in India? Has wildlife tourism become more and more established? And if it has, has it worked as a force towards promoting conservation in the country? That's another topic, complicated question in the sense that I was very lucky. I worked for Tiger Tops and Tiger Tops was recognized in the 70s as really being the only place in South Asia where wildlife tourism was successfully run. In 1978, when I was working for Tiger Tops in Delhi, Lakshmi and I, just before we got married, were asked to go and help at a camp being set up on the edge of Karna National Park, which is a camp that we still partner as and beyond today. It's called Kipling Camp, taking its name from Rudyard Kipling, who wrote The Jungle Book. 
That was in 1978-79. We spent most of that winter right on the edge of Kano National Park. And then when I left Tiger Tops in 1980, a friend of mine asked me to help set up a camp at a place called Bundavga. So we set up together the first camp there, Bundavga Jungle Camp, which then became a lodge that actually for a short while and beyond was a part, and it's a camp we still use. It's called Mawakuti today. The initial camp at Kipling and the initial camp in Bundavga Jungle Camp in 1980-81 were the only camps. There was government accommodation in the park, but we were the only camps. And all camps in India, all lodges in India, are outside the protected area, outside the park or sanctuary. No commercial operation or private operation is allowed inside a national park. Now, India's national parks, sanctuaries, reserves, because they're different categories, are all government-owned and all government-managed. 98% of all tourism around parks is private. The government tourism departments do have some projects, but they are also outside the parks. Many parks, many camps and lodges, whatever size they are, put a percentage of their earnings back into conservation projects in the locality. Now, that could be working with school children, it could be education, it could be buying clothing or equipment for forest guards, it could be providing a vehicle for patrolling to the national park. It could take many forms. Some parks, some lodges and camps pay lip service to this, to this need, but actually their, their practices back at the lodge is questionable. Their use of electricity, their disposal of waste, their, you know, the noise that they generate, where they source their food from, whether they employ people from the local community or bring people from a nearby town. But then other projects are very conscious of all those questions and do good things. So it's a very mixed bag. About 12 years ago, I was one of the founders, I was vice president of a thing called the Ecotourism Society of India, which is now morphed into Responsible Tourism Society of India, because I think that's a much more honest word. I think our aim has to be responsible tourism. I think ecotourism in many parts of the world is a nonsense. And the word eco, which originally derived from ecology, I guess, has become economic. So ecotourism is just another economic practice. So it's a term that I have to be honest, I do my best to avoid ever using. I mean, I recognize that in some parts of the world, like the United States, parts of Africa, Australia, Australasia, you know, it still has a meaning and it's still people still look at the use the good meaning. But I'm afraid in this part of the world, it's just become greenwash. I remember once being approached by someone from a park in central India. They were building a lodge and they asked me, Toby, you've, you know, you've worked in Bandaga, you worked in Kana, blah, blah, blah. Can you help advise us as to what we should do? We've got this, we've got this patch of land on the edge of a park and we're putting up tents and a central lodge building and we need to know what to plant. And I went and had a look at it. And actually, I knew the land from before. And I said, this land, you had a lovely bamboo patch just over there before. And you had a, some lovely old trees and shrubs over there. What happened to those? What happened, you know, was this land all cleared before you took it? Oh, no, no. When we started building, we cleared all the land. And I said, well, can you get the back? And can you plant indigenous species? And don't put a single non-native 
tree or shrub yes. or plant back in mm-hmm. for two reasons. One is exotics are going to use lots of water and you don't have much water in this area. Whereas if you put an endemic species or a naturalized species into this area, it is adapted and you won't need to use so much water. So for a start, you're going to save money and you're going to be environmentally more aware. But the attitude for many of them, it's, it's from ignorance that causes this sort of situation to take place. And in many cases, you have small town businessmen. Mm-hmm. Some of them are really nice guys or, and families. And they're very well-meaning Yes, but they haven't had the exposure, so they do something and then ask questions afterwards, which really is the wrong way around. But there are half some people who ask advice and ask questions before. I mean, my colleague Sohail runs our offices in Asia, and uh, our touring manager Dushant, and a couple of others, and I. We've all had experience working in lodges and working in park around parks and sanctuaries and setting up camps and lodges and people come to us and ask us sometimes when they're setting up and we'll give them a lot of time they hope that we'll give them business and we say well if if you reach Mm -hmm. x y and z standards we will certainly look at your project and if it's good we'll support you Mm -hmm. but when they come to us having done the damage and put up other ugly buildings without a waste system they get really disappointed and quite often don't understand why we don't want to use them. They think that they've just created something marvellous. And I'm sorry, but Mm -hmm. they haven't. Quite often, these are people who we know or we've known of or people who, you know, were working in a sort of junior capacity in a project and they were ambitious and they got local, they got some funding and they bought some land and did something. But they, they never really learned what they were doing before who they were working for. They didn't understand what they were doing. They, that is a sadness. So your an original question is, how has wildlife tourism, or has, how has tourism helped wildlife in India? Well, to be honest, it's a very, very mixed bag. Uh, there are some good projects. There are some superb projects. There are even more very nice people doing some projects, not all of which are successful or good, but they're, they're still yes. nice people. Then there are guys who've come in it's just a commercial operation. If I buy some land and I chop down the trees and I put up a concrete building and paint it green, I can call it an eco-lodge. And and then they wonder why we don't give them business. And there's very little regulation. Government tends to be reactive. It's never proactive, certainly at the levels of district authorities and, and forest departments and park managers. So, I mean, they have enough to deal with anyway, but but then they are reactive. They could have given guidelines. They could enforce them, but they never do. So the damage is done. And I'm very, very against new camps and lodges coming up around most of India's parks. If anyone ever asks me, and I still get asked, and so do our colleagues, so does Sohail and uh, our colleagues in the office, we still get asked. We tend to say, first of all, look for a greenfield site and go to somewhere where no one goes. And then they say, but no one goes there, so why would I want to do a project there? And then I say, well, no one went to Bandavgar before I started Bandavgar Jungle Camp because there was nothing there. No one went to Kana until we did Kipling Camp. No one went to Pench until Sohail and Dushan started a camp called Bhagavan. Yes. No one went to Apura, which is probably my favorite park nowadays, until Sohail and his partners mm-hmm. started a camp called Forsyth Lodge. 
So it's a nonsense to say you don't go somewhere because no one's going there now. You do something, mm-hmm. do your homework, do something original, invest in it, invest time, mm-hmm. invest knowledge. Don't expect a quick return. It's not a real estate business. It's a wildlife business. Mm-hmm. What's your motivation? Well, your advice, no, your advice certainly makes a lot of sense, I think. Well, I think any of us would do it. We must never forget, you and I, and we are incredibly privileged to work for a conservation company. First and foremost, it's a conservation company that earns income from tourism. It's not the other way around. I'm incredibly lucky, having started my career with people like Chuck McDougall and Jim Edwards in Nepal and our colleagues, to at the sort of the other end, to be working with a company that really does what it says it does. It's what's written on the packet. You get what's written. That's a rare privilege. Toby, thank you. As always, it's been incredibly interesting talking to you. And I think that's a really good high note for us to end on. We'll be exploring a little bit of where you went to from here and how you got involved in King Documentaries and another podcast. But for now, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It always is. Thank you, Cassia. Thank you, Toby. Thank you for listening to End Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.